0: Welcome to the latest episode of Leader Readycast. I'm your host, Eric McNulty, and my guest today is Brian Hastings, director of the Alabama Emergency Management Agency. We're going to discuss his NPLI team project on combating opioid addiction, which has become an enduring initiative, as well as his transition from the military into leading a civilian agency. Now, Brian has been an alumnus of the NPLI. He was in cohort 15, uh, which is about two years ago and uh, we've been following his career ever since. Brian, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Eric. I appreciate the time this morning.
0: So let's start with that uh, NPLI project. And just to let our audience know, when uh, cohorts come through the NPLI, the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, part of what they do is form up into project teams that bring together people from multiple agencies to tackle a real-world problem that they've defined and they lay out the path for it. They spend about six months working on it and then come back here to Harvard and present what they've what they've done. And these are a wide range of projects over the years. But one of the great things about the project that Brian worked on is it has endured beyond the end of the executive education program. So the, the impact it's having continues to build, and that's something that really is exciting for us, and we know it benefits the communities in which you're working. So, Brian, let me ask you to quickly take us through your project. Uh, how did it come to be and what did you do?
1: Sure, thanks. Uh, again, I was a little bit of an outsider when it came to this project. There was a small team that had formed and, and my project title and purpose that I, I wanted to do was a little bit about social media and falsities and truths and trying to attack them, but didn't get a lot of traction. And then this, this group next to me they were talking about um, the opioid crisis. And I have to be quite honest, being in the military, a little bit of isolated uh, population, and being down south, we weren't in the throes of an opioid crisis yet, but I had been reading about it in a newspaper. And they were talking about trying to build a program where they could get local communities and folks below the government level to do something to connect them with opioid antagonists like uh, Narcan or Evzio, it was a a, a lock zone program. And when I listened to what they were talking about, they were first responders, they were a department of public health, they were CDC folks and doctors, and they were knee deep in this, especially up in the Northeast and the Boston region. And I asked if I could be a part of it. And they said, sure. At first I must admit as an attack pilot, commandant, 27 year fighter pilot, I didn't know what I was going to offer to this team because it was so outside of anything that I did. But that's the purpose of MPLI is to get you comfortable with being comfortable, or get you comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I really wanted to take this opportunity to do something that I was not good at or didn't have any background in. Uh, I, I wasn't dealing with first responders. I wasn't dealing with the opioid crisis. It hasn't affected my family yet. And it wasn't something that I was involved with. So we got this team together. It was called Push to Breathe. And our, I, our concept was we would develop a checklist, kind of like a recipe book, for people that were struggling to connect with federal grants, which are tough to get, sometimes take 12 months or more. And then whether you, your application is accepted or not or whether you miss the application deadline, you have to wait another year or two. But this, this problem was real. It was now, and it was getting worse exponentially every day. So we, we were trying to connect with another mechanism, another entity organization quickly to find naloxone kits. So we came up together. It was six or seven of us. And basically, the premise of the program was we wanted to take a look at all the states and what their policies, laws were, whether aggressive or progressive with regard to Good Samaritan and allowing citizens and first responders to use naloxone. And then we tried to connect, do some research on the different grants that were out there, and we actually uh, formed a partnership with Kaleo Pharmaceutical, who had this Kaleo Cares program that they were donating kits, and kits are auto-injectors with two doses each. Of naloxone with a trainer kit, and then we were going to all the law enforcement throughout the United States to find best practices with training, because a lot of times inside of the law, the policy, the policy of departments of public health and law enforcement, the first step is: Do you have a good Samaritan law? Do you have policies that say that a physician can write bulk bulk prescriptions for naloxone? Then. To in order to push this to first responders, the law ha- the laws have to state that they ha- you know they believe in good Samaritan. It releases people with liability of using this drug against people who are overdosing against opioids. Then the training whether it has to be in house, it can be virtual via via um, video, and then you connect the people with that training, that comfort of knowing how to use it, and then you, you build this program that allows a community to ask for the shipment. You donate it through a 503C, I think it is, which is a nonprofit organization because government entities can't take bulk shipments or donations from private organizations, which is also a tough uh, needle to thread. So once the government gets it, then they can distribute it, or once a physician gets it, they can then distribute it to their local law enforcement with the training, with accountability. And now you've pressed this life-saving capability very, very far forward to the front lines of the opioid crisis so that the people who are actually seeing the effects of the opioids are able to do something. They're able to slow the dying process, whether it's slow, reverse, or stop the dying process. You get this to the front lines of the opioid war. So we built this checklist, and it started in Jacksonville. And uh, Dr. Phyllis Hollenbeck, she was able to start a 200 kit program with the Jack. I'm sorry, the Jackson, Mississippi uh, uh, police force. And she did that easily because she's a physician. I don't have that ability to get a bulk shipment. So I tried to do it in, in Montgomery. Even though my my job in our program, my role was I was building a uh, strategic messaging campaign and a public affairs guidance to keep our message pure up, down across and out beyond our enterprise so that we were on the same message of what we were trying to do. And then ultimately through a few failures and four months of trying, finally, I was able to partner with the Department of Public Health, the Alabama District Attorney's Association and the district attorney to get 600 kits, which is 1,200 doses, out to all forensic investigators in 67 counties around Alabama all rural law enforcement that are at risk and alone and unafraid in the vast spaces of rural Alabama. And then whatever the residual was, we pushed in accordance with law enforcement and Department of Public Health data of where the opioid crisis was impacting us the greatest. So it was was really my first opportunity to meet a huge amount of people in the whole of government, whole of community population in Alabama and really establish, I must admit, long-lasting relationships that have, you know, bared fruit here in the uh, recent times and I know in the future.
0: Well, that's great. That, that's the, exactly the kind of uh, project impact we look for and we don't get it all the time and you guys did a tremendous job with it. Now, Push to Breathe is ongoing. Um, how has this project taken on a bit of a life of its own and what's going on now?
1: Well, a, a spin off of one of our projects was the GEMS program. I'm not sure exactly what GEMS stands for. But Jack and Carrie, the super uh, deputy superintendent of the police in Cambridge, and then uh, Carrie is, uh, I think, the chief of police of Massachusetts. That I mean, she's she's her career is taken off too. She's in a great position right now. They were part of this program where, if you saw someone overdosing, in the just on the streets in the city, someplace where they had this gems box on a telephone pole, electric pole, or on the side of a building, you could text. Type in a code and a dose of naloxone would come out, and then you'd be able to administer to a person who was overdosing to stop the dying price process and try to save a life. So I mean, it's really an impressive project that <laughs> pushed naloxone, this opioid antagonist, down to the lowest denominator of society, a, a person walking by, an actual good Samaritan who just wanted to help. I mean, just a phenomenal program. And then here locally in Alabama, I've been blessed to have two opportunities. One was a lady, Regina Walker, who's the Montgomery Sheriff or Montgomery County Sheriff Grant's officer was struggling on trying to make a project, a naloxone project. And it's funny because that was one of the first places I tried to do it and folks didn't want to because, you know, the fire department responds, well, we don't need it. It's not a problem. She took this on and was just having trouble just starting, just where do I go? How do I connect? What do I do? And someone mentioned my name, so she gave me a call. A few phone calls later, I immediately connected her with 50 KITS. I immediately connected her with the uh, Alabama Department uh, of Health and the the nurse, Nancy Bishop, who's in charge of all the training and building the video training and the legal aspects of this program and pushing it to first responders. And then uh, got her in contact with Kaleo and Sam Schwartz to finalize, because she had started it, but to finalize, The application process because when you read it, it's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. And that was the purpose of this program is that we give you something. We help you step through this because to the average person you look at and go, I can't do this, but you can. And she did. So she started a 200 kit program in Montgomery. And then just three months ago, out of the blue, Senator Dial up in District thirteen in northern Alabama called me and said, I want to start a twenty seven hundred (laughs) kit program for all for all volunteer fire departments and volunteer rescue units in all of Alabama. I was like, You gotta be kidding me. That is huge. It's massive. And so I called Sam Swartz, who's in charge of the Kaleo Cares Project, Kaleo Pharmaceutical, and we talked a little bit. I reached out to Alabama Department of Public Health to make sure that we had the logistics and supply chain in place because the only thing worse than getting kits and you know using them is getting kits and letting them sit because no one wants them and you don't use them and you could save a life. So I wanted to make sure that There was a demand, we had a supply, we had a supply chain and everything was in place so that if we got this approved, which I've never seen a donation request this large get approved, that we were ready to execute. And lo and behold, uh, we had done good work laying the ground path and Senator Dow was a great campaigner for it. He didn't get, we didn't get the 2,700 kits, but we got 870. And the program was set up so that as people out in the field are using these on victims uh people who are overdosing, they once they use them all they have to do is call back to adph or to kaleo and a new kit will be sent so it's a resupply supply chain i've never heard of anything like that but it does it does two things one as soon as you get these kits they start to expire it's a two-year expiration if you if you store them in kind of like osha standards office standards you know anywhere between like 59 and 78 degrees or something So now it's a just in time where if you use it and it goes to where the demand is and it doesn't sit, it comes fresh from the company. It goes right to the hands of the people who need it on the front lines. And it was, I mean, there's so much serendipity and all the things that we've done here as you connect with people and as you message things and you have this common purpose was just, just, all you were trying to do is save lives and mitigate suffering, which is a lot like emergency management. We're all part of this. So, I mean, ADPH was excited about this because they were trying to do this as a state organization. The, the local VA, uh, the volunteer fire departments, the rural uh, rescue units, they don't have money. So anything that they get with free training, free assets and tools, I consider naloxone a tool to save lives. These are things that build organic capability within Alabama. And it's, it's paid dividends. It has paid dividends. And so it's, it's really... It's a noble program, a noble cause, and I'm just, it's so rewarding to be a part of it.
0: Well, that's great. It's an amazing story. Uh, as you reflect back on the, the meta-leadership you were taught here at Harvard, I mean, I see obvious lessons around connectivity, uh, but what are some of the meta-leadership lessons you took from your experience with Push to Breathe?
1: Yeah, it 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 reaffirmed many of the skills that uh, the military and working large, diverse organizations and coalitions have taught me. And the one thing, you know, being a part of Push to Breathe is that I got way outside of my cylinder of excellence, as I call it, my comfort zone, the people that I normally work with, around, and for. So I was cold calling people and trying to sell me, sell our vision, what we were doing, you know, having doctors and nurses and chiefs of police and senior leaders and legislators around Alabama get a call from this guy named Brian Hastings, who they don't know, and trying to say, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. And then kind of calling back and doing this because, you know, this connectivity, it's not easy. It doesn't happen instantaneously. But when you, when you take that meta-leadership model that you guys have and you talk about the individual knowing yourself, the environment and all the participants inside of your realm of influence, which is bigger than your realm of your hierarchical structure. And then, you know, thinking about what is the lexicon I need to use to talk up to my senior leaders, to motivate them, inspire them. What is the lexicon and the connectivity down to people who may work for me in an organization to mobilize them for activity and unity effort? And then across different organizations, because, you know, as I've talked about, there are a lot of people who have helped me in this. I mean, we've got the Department of Corrections because a lot of people with mental health go in there and people with mental health tend to be opioid, uh, have been connected to opioids in the past. You got the Department of Mental Health, who is knee deep in the opioid crisis, Department of Public Health. You got your law enforcement so leading, you know, across the state enterprise, plus beyond into that, into, you know, even if it's Kaleo Pharmaceutical and their Calero Cares program, Sam Schwartz, he's on my speed dial. And if there's someone who needs some help or there's a noble program that someone wants to do, um, it's, it's that meta-leadership model that I've used is that, you know, if we're only as strong and as influential as all of us are together. So if you can pull people towards a unifying goal that inspires them and keeps them moving towards it. It's amazing what you can do. And you're not in the same chains of command. You're not bossing each other around, but the activities that you're doing in parallel, sometimes simultaneously are going to an end state that is bigger than anything that you ever thought you could do. And it just, it really reaffirms some of the things that I've seen through the years in the military it was refreshing to meet people who I never thought I'd meet before at uh, Harvard through the M.P.L.I. program, and I really enjoyed the experience and cohort team. All the instructors—you, Barry, Lenny—phenomenal. The guest speakers, you know, they they shared these powerful stories of both successes and failures, and lessons learned, and to take their failures. I mean, that's a great way of learning. Take their failures, try to internalize it so that when you get into a situation that may not be exact, but it rhymes, <laughs> you kind of seen this before. It helps you navigate through the complexity of it. I, I think in going to, working with Push the Breathe, and as you look around, there's not a whole lot of people stepping out to do great things because one, it takes time. Two, it's it's overwhelming. It is overwhelming to navigate the bureaucracies and to motivate people when you know you're struggling to be a husband and a father and do your own job and just make ends meet. But I'll, I'll tell you what, there's no, nothing like at the end of the day where you go, you're kidding me. We just got six eight hundred and seventy kits that are going to all parts of Alabama. To the folks who are on the front lines in the communities volunteering to save people' people's lives, that's, that's powerful stuff. So like I said before, Push to Breathe, it really connected me with a part of the population and a part of society that I never thought I'd be a part of or at least this closely connected with. And uh, I hope it continues. I hope it continues.
0: Well, I'm, I'm sure that, Will, I and mean, I take a couple of things away from your story. Um, one is it's interesting that when the f- team was first forming, they were very much focused on Boston and, Ma- and Massachusetts because of Kerry Geldman from the state police and Jack Albert from the uh, Cambridge police. So They had a geographic focus, but then it grew and it has this amazing impact down in Alabama and Mississippi that extends out there. So it really grew geographically and having an impact in both places, and then also Someone like yourself, and I I try and tell this to people, and you've just articulated it very well, is get outside of that comfort zone and look for people to work with who are trying to do good things. Even if it's not in your cylinder of excellence, you'll find a way to contribute, uh, and together you can do great things. And in the case of uh, of the opioid crisis and this challenge, I mean, there is an obvious problem and there is an obvious pharmacological solution to part of it anyway. But then getting those two things to come together so you actually have some a change on the ground is really complicated and complex. And it was that multidisciplinary approach of the team and the people you connected to along the way that figured out how to navigate around through or over the various obstacles to make it happen. And everybody starts this process saying I'm way too busy. I haven't got time for this. But as you just said, at the end of the day you find the time and when you're saving lives, boy, how satisfying is that?
1: It really is. And so it's, it's interesting. You mentioned the, the cylinders of excellence that I talked about is that it's at the intersection of our disciplines where innovation and creativity starts. When we understand what other people do, what we do and how we can do things together more efficiently, effectively and innovatively, that's where the magic starts. Yeah.
0: Now, you've also had a big change in your life uh, last year 2017 you retired from the air force after many years to become the director of the alabama emergency management agency you moved over to the civilian side from federal to state what's that transition been like for you
1: <laughs> i want to you know if there's one term uh, i could use i was thinking funny or crazy because <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all i'm very thankful for my boss uh General uh, Stephen Kwanis, he was able to, as I transitioned, I retired very quickly in less than about two months. As I transitioned into state government, on the backside of my military career, as I was tying up loose ends, moving off base, having a change of command, moving into a new house, and moving into a new job, he allowed me to take some time as a representative of AU to embed into the National Guard, and I went into their hurricane exercise prep. Two weeks prior to my retirement, on one September and three weeks prior to Hurricane Irma hitting. And so both the transition was both easier than I expected, but more challenging than I expected. Because, op- because the military and being a commander of large, large organizations, you deal with exercises, you deal with operational activity, combat operations, emergency operations, dealing with crisis and defense support civil authorities. it it felt comfortable. How about that? The the transition felt comfortable. I was going into another operationally centric organization and state government, more operationally centric than others. You know, the emergency management focuses on things and doing and preparation, response and recovery. So there's a lot of movement, unity of effort and partnering with people. So that felt very, very comfortable. But three days in, so I, I get in my office. I, I don't know where my office is. You know, I, I barely know how to drive to my office. I, I don't know uh, where everything is, who everyone is in this organization. And my senior merit employee, my executive operations officer, comes in and says, um, hey, tomorrow we're going to brief the governor on a direct strike of a Cat 5 uh, Hurricane Irma. And I looked at him and I just started laughing. Oops. I said, really? All right. Getting up. Here we go. <laughs> Because if you remember, you know, about one or two of the models showed Irma skirting around the Keys and kind of going up into the Mobile Baldwin counties. Absolutely. That's what we were, that's what we were struggling with. We were uh, probably 96 hours out of a direct strike and we're like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. But so we, we, um. That first week I got to, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Everyone who wants to come in and either be the CEO, the director, the secretary, or something of a large organization, you think of this very well-oiled parade of people through your office with PowerPoint briefs. and. You know, someone holding your hand and going through all these organizations to meet and greet and ask questions and see what everyone does. Mine was, hey, we need to build this brief. We need to talk about what's going on, get the weather intelligence, come up with a plan, activate the emergency operations plan, start activation of the emergency operations center, and get right into ops. So, all of that integration. And uh, assimilation was done. It was just jump in the deep end and start swimming. Here's a microphone, start talking to people. And so we went and briefed the governor and her staff. And then a few days later, it was the 10th, she visited the EOC. And uh, <laughs> so I had my staff leading me around because I was still trying to figure out where everything was. And uh, we had some press conferences and I was alone in the elevator with governor ivy and i just i turned to her and i just chuckled and i said ma'am when you said you when do you want to start i should have said one december (laughs) 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 after after hurricane season's over but it was awesome it was phenomenal i couldn't ask for anything better you know people uh, when you think about this you know senior leadership people around just five days prior there was an article in the paper that said that the former director of Alabama Emergency Management Agency was retiring, and there's this new guy. And also Jeff Byard, he's the assistant administrator for FEMA and the, the response and recovery uh, directorate. And so he was our senior mayor employee. He was gone. So the top two or three people in this state organization were gone and new people were running it. So there, you could sense there was probably some anxiety in some, some folks. But we navigated Irma very well. The governor trusted in us. I trusted in our people. I mean, I'm a big fan of humble confidence. I walked in there and I said, ladies and gentlemen, I can't do any of your jobs. Well, I'm not the expert in mitigation, preparedness, response, and recovery within the FEMA structure. I'm new to this. So I'm going to rely on all of you and I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to ask a lot of questions. My God, I'm going to ask a lot of questions, but the questions aren't asking because I want to get into your business. It's the questions are asked because I need to get into your business. I need to, I need to figure out what we're doing here. And so they were one, they're very gracious Two, the other thing that I planted in their minds is, let tell me what i can do what only i can do as your director to make your jobs easier to motivate inspire alabamians for action to mitigate their exposure to threats and set this institution and this state up for success as we navigate these storms and they they were my team was phenomenal and then the other part of this was the state enterprise, because we don't have a lot of stuff at EMA. We're a 90 people strong with some vehicles and towers that communicate with others. But the power of us is the power of the guard, law enforcement, department of mental health, human services, mental health, you know, education, you fill in the blanks of the cabinet members and the staff that governor Ivy has working for that is what we mobilize and then other states to help us and the federal government to help us. So it was, it was humbling. It was inspirational. I mean, the team really stepped up. And it, I think what it did for me is sometimes when you have opportunities like that, instead of looking at it as a challenge and a detriment to your, your integration, it was an incredible opportunity to see how the team works under a crisis situation and for the team to look to me to go, what is this new guy like? How is he going to act? How is he going to react? What are the words that are coming out of his mouth, and is he modeling the behavior and activity that he wants Alabama and this organization to do? and I, it was a, I, I couldn't ask for a, a better opportunity to enter into state government.
0: Well, and again, that is quite a story, and sometimes there is, uh, if you handle it properly, nothing quite like a rapid onboarding process uh, right into the into the fire. the The thread that I pull coming through your story from General Quast to Dair University, helping you with your transition to your attitude toward your team, um, is this notion of how can I help make you a success? Now that's one of the things we emphasize here and we have found in a number of settings that boy does it open a lot of doors, does it open a lot of minds, and open a lot of hearts when you approach the situation with how can I help make you a success? And I love the way you articulated it as humble confidence of asking questions, of listening, of trusting people, of knowing you've got something to contribute, but making sure that what you're contributing actually adds value. So asking people, how can I what, what can only I do that makes your job easier, better, makes you more effective? And then being willing to be led a bit by your people because you're not the expert in everything they do. And so to me those are quite a number of meta leadership lessons that I pull out of what you've just talked about. Uh, let me just ask you in our last minute or so, as you look back, what are some of the meta-leadership tools you found most valuable as you made that transition and, and jumped into Irma and beyond?
1: Well, I, I must admit, I, I love the walk in the woods and the model that you created with how do you get people from diverse backgrounds with seemingly di- differences that are so distant that you can't find a common thread to get them together. And sometimes you just have to take a step back. You need to set up an environment where people can get together and talk. And then you, you know, I used to use this term when in coalitions and in staff, where if you have great consensus, then you have great specificity in the policy that you're developing and it makes it very easy. Sometimes it's detrimental because it's too specific. Where you lack consensus, then the things that you have in common or the way you write policies may be vague and ambiguous, but you got to get those threads that keep us moving forward to a position in time and space of greater value that you want to go to. And so that walk, walk in the woods of finding that common ground and putting the defenses down a little bit and really trying to take two separate teams, succinct teams or individuals on the same team going towards the same goal and coming up with this win-win, these mutual interests that are mutually beneficial as opposed to being adversarial all the time. So I, I, I love the story. I love the essays you guys build, and I love the model. I'm a big model guy, by the way. I'm a John Boyd disciple. Ooda loop, and I liked your pop doc. So the pop doc, I also like because it's, it, it's simple. You know, it's, it gives you this sense and this is the reason I like Boyd. It's, it's all about science. I'm a science guy. It's all about the laws of nature and the laws of nature apply in my mind and they're refutable and nothing changes under the sun because, you know, a lot of times humans are are motivated very uh, powerfully by fear and self-interest. It's not perfect. I don't like it, but I try to lead without fear and I try to think of other people as I move forward. So in orienting and deciding and trying to figure out what the environment's like and then getting people to move and make decisions and motivate and then go back. Once you make a model, the environment changes because people adhere to the model or comply with the model or react to the model. So the assumptions have changed, whether they're large or not. And I like that you have the reverse Mobius, the Mobius strip that shows this is an infinite cycle. It never ends. And, um, you know, just like John Boyd says, is the first day that you stop to evolve, change or assess your environment is probably the first day that you start dying or, or worse, become irrelevant. So I really like uh, that tool that you have. It just gives you a sense at a distance of, okay every day is a new day always question your assumption. the for, the laws and the policies we make today are the, are just the beginning of a new problem that we have to solve tomorrow and some people look at that and are disheartened i look at it as exciting because every day there's going to be a new challenge and an opportunity to you know to bring people together to solve something to do something and Uh, I guess I get energy from that where other people expand a lot and it just brings them down and they just want steady state, stay in our cubicle, stay in the box in the hierarchical structure that we created because sometimes that's what we get comfort from. I I don't like that. Uh, The other thing is I do like the meta-leadership model that you came up with because one, it's easy. As a fighter pilot, I love cartoons. I love colors. I love simplifying things. So you can take these complex abstract. Uh, models and the way the world works, and you put it into something that's visual in front of me, and it's a quick reminder of you know, the importance of, especially on teams, and this is the beauty of emergency management with the uh, NIMS and ICS, is that we've created a common structure. We've created a common lexicon. We've created common uniforms, and when you do those things, you have this common culture, And when you create a culture that's nationwide, you know, whether it's um, Administrator Brock Long talking about a culture of preparedness or it's emergency managers thinking about this operationally focused culture of action to get something done to save lives and mitigate suffering, that is powerful stuff because it influences how you think, how you view the world, how you react to it, and how you decide. And so reminding, you know, I, I remind our folks all the time is that we don't write letters for ourselves. If it's going up to the governor, then it needs to be short, distinct, and in her language and tied to the federal government's language because you need to – you I, I use these terms. I don't know if it's pejorative or not. You need to use the person's lexicon that you're trying to influence against them. You need to pull what they value and craft it into something of where you want them to be motivated, inspired, or – decide in something that you believe is in the best interest of the state or the federal government or your organization, and then also articulate why it's a a good reason and maybe some of the negative aspects or dissenting opinions. As you go down, a lot of people in an organization, um, they're they're humans, right? And I told you earlier that uh, we tend to gravitate towards these hierarchical structures of a box, or a line, and it defines who I work for and who works for me, and I have this uh, position description that says these are the only things that I can do because this is me, this is my job, and it's usually tied to a title and an office and a parking spot, but I want to build an organization. I'm doing it right now. We've had a tremendous amount of turnover in Alabama emergency management, 66%, and the reason is I've shifted the deck chairs on the boat. (laughs) I wanted everyone to do something else in other, another directorate. So I don't want any experts. I want people who are good at everything. So we're all emergency managers because in, I look at readiness as a cycle and we're in every aspect of this cycle all the time, mitigation, preparedness, response, and recovery. We're always doing all of them. If any of them fail, we fail. And I want to reprioritize resources, including people to do all those activities when we need to, because currently We just closed out um, Hurricane Irma. We're still closing out Hurricane Nate on the coast. We're still dealing with a a nine to $100 million disaster from the 17 tornadoes that hit us on 19 March. And we're doing all this simultaneously with 25% of our uh, people deployed to Anniston, Alabama at the uh, FEMA CDP. And so we're maxed out. And if we couldn't shift people around, and, and we just responded to Alberto, too. We had to shift people from Anniston back to response in Clanton, Alabama, for our emergency operations center so that nothing failed. We continued our activities of recovery and connecting people with FEMA dollars and assistance and small business uh, administration loans up north. But at the same time, we had to connect with counties who were feeling the effects of a tropical storm Alberto as it passed through Alabama. So... I'm trying to use this meta-leadership model to break down these cylinders of uh, excellence to connect people with each other so that when they look at information, they operationalize it, they weaponize it, they go, ooh, this!" instead of saying this information doesn't apply to me, now they know exactly who it's important to and why, and they pass it to them. And that's how you communicate in a crisis. You practice it, you bring data to life, you make it actionable for other people. So, that's just some of my views on how an organization should function.
0: Well, and that's, and I have to say, you've done a great encapsulation of uh, some of the tools we teach here, and so you were clearly paying attention, uh, and your energy is infectious. I want to tell our, our listeners that if you want more information on the meta leadership model, on the walk in the woods method for interest based negotiation, or the pop doc loop for uh, establishing a leadership rhythm, you can come to our website. The link is at the end of this broadcast, and you can find information there in the resources section on each one of those. And then additionally, uh, Brian, I listened to you talk. What came to my mind was the work of a colleague down at MIT named Zeynep Tong, and she has done research not in emergency management, but a lot in retail, and what she has called the good job strategy. And what she found was that when you cross-train people In different functions a they get more engaged because they're learning and doing something and you achieve amazing operational efficiencies because people are thinking beyond their cylinder of excellence to see how does everything connect together and how can I help make it better so it's good to see those principles work in emergency management as well and I think although you've had some initial turnover over the long haul that should build an organization where people are excited to be they're contributing at a high level because they're learning and they're becoming more competent um, and seeing how what they do fits into the larger picture so that was a tremendous tremendous summary now in conclusion here i just want to say our guest today has been brian hastings he's director of the alabama emergency management agency proud graduate of cohort 15 of the npli Uh, brian i want to thank you today for your insights and also thank you for your service
1: Hey, thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. Keep up the good work. And uh, I appreciate the time and connecting with your audience.
0: Look forward to seeing you soon.
1: All right. Take care, sir.
0: This has been another episode of Leader Readycast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader Readycast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.